0: Welcome to the Birding Life Podcast. My name is Adam, and I'm your host on the podcast where you discover birds and the birders that pursue them. The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars, and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird logging app. Spot, plot, play a part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. The Birding Life is a lot more than just a podcast. It's a multi-platform resource to connect birders with each other, amazing locations, the best resources and obviously where to find amazing birds. Head on over to our website www.thebirdinglife.com and be sure to sign up to our newsletter on the site so you do not miss out on any of the exciting things that are coming up. Be sure to follow this podcast on whatever platform you are listening to it on and please take some time to rate and comment on it. This is episode 22, and in this episode, we continue to celebrate women birders and conservationists. Today, I get to chat to one of the Eastern Cape's best loved birders, Lynette Rudman. She shares all about her days of growing up on a farm and how that shaped her love for nature. She takes us on an extensive virtual trip through the Eastern Cape, and she tells us all about her passion for recording bird calls okay lynette i want to welcome you to the show um i know we've been speaking a while about doing this episode i think it's been about two months in the making if i recall correctly
1: yes that is right yeah
0: it's good to have you on the show and i've heard from so many birders some really cool stories about you and i'm really excited to have a chat to you today and just to get to know you a little bit better um we are in the middle of women's month and we are celebrating women birders and women in conservation and it's a real privilege to be able to chat to you. Um, I went earlier onto your website and I was just doing a bit of online stalking and learning a little bit more about you. And I was really fascinated to read your story about you growing up on a farm in the Eastern Cape. So can you tell us a little bit more about these younger years and how your love for nature started?
1: Um, I grew up on a farm near Alice, which is not far from where I'm living now in Grahamstown. Our farm was quite far from town. and um, I was a real farm child. I ran around outside. I really didn't like sitting in the house. I was a very outdoorsy child and I, I guess I'm still very outdoorsy. I'd much rather be outside than sitting indoors. Um, I remember from a very young age being very interested in insects and you know, creepy crawlies and um, caterpillars and that and finding out more about them I remember even um, as a very young child um, finding a tortoise in midwinter, deep inside a bush. And, you know, I remember learning at school that um, reptiles hibernate in winter and that, and that kind of left an impression on me. And I used to like explore um, the bush and that because we had bush all around our house. It was really cool. Um, like you could run for miles and, um, it would just be felt, you know, like thicker than that. And I had um, the farm workers, kids as friends, and I still run around um, speaking Xhosa all day long. And I remember my parents also speaking to my brothers and I in sort of half English and half Xhosa at the dining room table, because we were so bilingual. And I often learned the Xhosa word for the birds and, you know the insects and even the plants um before i even knew the english names
0: i know with the zulu names the zulu bird names that they're a lot more descriptive of the bird it's not just like in english we just give the bird a name um there's a lot more descriptive of the bird and the behavior is that very similar with the the kosa names of the birds and the insects
1: very very similar i think zulu and kosa are very similar um i can speak a bit of Zulu too. I lived in KZN for two years. Yeah, the names are very similar. Like Nediki, um, um, the Kossar version is Nede, and means a teeny little bird. Um, and the Kossars used to always say that is the smallest bird we've got. But um, obviously the Cape Penduline tit is even smaller. But um, I remember growing up knowing that the Nediki is the smallest bird that we had on our farm. Um, because the farm workers' kids told me that. So, um, you know, I've grown up sort of learning like the Kosa folklore and the Kosa way of like seeing the bush and the animals and, and learning about things like that.
0: And then, you know, obviously I also know with the Zulu culture, you know, growing up in, in, in KZN, there's a lot of folklore around birds and animals and that kind of thing. What is some of the folklore around the birds? What are some stories, cool stories you can tell us about folklore around some of the Eastern Cape birds?
1: Yeah, um, This isn't really folklore, but I remember um, the workers on our farm talking a lot about the greater honeyguide calling them, you know, to, to hives. And, you know, that used to fascinate me because, you know, this bird is calling people. And, um, they loved that bird because they would give the bird some honeycomb, but they'd also you know um score as well they'd know where the harps were, so you know that was really cool um learning all those type of things about birds and and you know what they did and and people's interactions with birds um you know it's fantastic and since that um I was in Duesa, and we had a very persistent um, greater honey guard calling us and calling us. It wouldn't let us go. And we followed it, and it eventually took us to an extremely tall tree in the forest, and we could see bees coming and going from a hole there. And that was so cool that I actually experienced that myself in my later years.
0: You know, one thing I love about you know you you spoke about now this connection between man and nature, and I think that's very much part of the folklore and part of that. Like you know, we spoke a while ago about, for example, the rainbird and all those kind of things, and it's pretty cool. You know how how has you know the, those formative years growing around the you know the Corsa um, people and their view of nature, and and there's almost this connectedness to to man. And how how do you think that has shaped the Way that you see birds and nature around you now?
1: It's definitely made me more passionate about birds and more observant. Um, I remember from a young age, you know, these um, farm workers' kids teaching me, you know, like saying, Oh, there's a greater honey god, or you know, and like showing me, and I'd be more observant and I'd, I took everything in like a sponge, you know, I was, I was very interested and I've always been interested in nature. You know not only birds um anything nature related um insects and spiders you know and that sort of thing you know just nature in in general is fascinating
0: yeah and it 's amazing how you know there's this connectedness between man and nature, but there's also this connectedness between nature as a whole, you know how everything relies on each other, and i think it's, it's, it's a lot it 's a lot more intricate than I think we 've ever realized
1: um i don 't know if the um, people the Sort of modern day people now are so connected to nature as they were you know when i was growing up in the 60s and 70s um i think people are more sort of um i don't know away from nature now and it's actually quite sad but um yeah i'm very privileged to have grown up in that time when people were very connected with nature on the farm and you know like interacted with the birds, you know, didn't sort of kill everything that moved, but they, you know, like worked with the birds and, and it, it was really great.
0: Um, you were involved in teaching before, if I remember correctly.
1: Yes, I taught for many years. I was a foundation phase teacher in the first part of my teaching career. And then um, later on, I ran my old, own preschool yeah, in Grahamstown for 12 years. So I've been teaching for most of my adult life.
0: So the fact that you've you know been around teaching and kids and that kind of thing, how would you say that we can get that fascination for nature back into kids, where we can expose kids and get them fascinated with nature again? What what would be your thoughts around that?
1: In all my teaching, and especially yeah, in my preschool, I took the kids on nature walks often, and each one had a container, and they picked up little bugs and all sorts of things, and put it in a the- container and then we'd have like a picnic um, on the you know, like under a tree and then we'd um, let each one open their little container and then we'd talk about what insect or bug or, you know, millipede or centipedes in in the thing and we'd talk about it and then we'd put it back again um, where it was found. We never ever brought them to school because, you know, I think that wouldn't have been cool to remove insects from where they're from. But um, I tried to bring nature into the classroom as well. We um, raised tadpoles as well, you know, um, tadpoles into frogs and that was absolutely fascinating watching the different stages of the tadpoles from legless to getting front legs, back legs, losing the tail and then turning into froglet. It was very cool. And and the parents really enjoyed that because a lot of the parents were into nature, you know, being like um, Rhodes lecturers, kids and that. So they liked nature and they enjoyed the fact that uh, made their kids more aware of, you know, like the natural world around them. Yeah, it would be good if more schools would have nature clubs in them, uh, you know, like especially junior schools and high schools as well. Not necessarily only bird clubs, but like a nature club where they learn about, you know, the broader sort of nature.
0: I just thought back to when I was in school and we did biology and we learned about birds and bees and all these kinds of things. And I honestly, I hated it because it's out of a textbook. And I think that is one of the problems we got. We've got a whole lot of kids that are sitting in a, and I know it's difficult for teachers. I'm not trying to slam teachers here, but we've got a, a teaching system that, that elevates uh, a textbook over experience and i think what you were saying earlier is it's it's not it's getting kids beyond a textbook to actually experience nature firsthand i think that is the thing i believe that's going to grab their hearts more than any textbook ever would
1: exactly um in my preschool that i ran we had an outing every two weeks i made sure we went somewhere every two weeks so we we had like a theme each week and if Say, for example, we were learning about the dairy farm. We would go and visit a proper dairy farm. If we were learning about insects, we'd go out, you know, on like an insect collecting thing where each one had a container or we'd go to the Albany Museum and they've got fantastic specimens there. And we'd learn, you know, more about that. So the kids got out of the classroom and had a hands-on experience of all these. Various things. The Albany Museum has a fantastic, like, exhibition there of birds of the Eastern Cape, and we used to take them there as well. And they even had like a touch room where the kids could actually touch, like, a penguin. You know, it's obviously stuffed and that. But you know, and they'd learn about you know what the penguin does and you know why it's uh, got short feathers like that. It can swim and it's waterproof and all that type of thing. So. Yeah, the kids in my school had a lot of hands-on experience out of the classroom, not just um, sitting, listening, or looking at pictures. You know.
0: So one of the things that you're involved in is the Eastern Cape Birding Group on Facebook. Now, I have had not the cha- I have, I've not had the chance to bird in the Eastern Cape yet. I've visited the Eastern Cape, but I wasn't a birder yet, unfortunately. And after seeing all the posts of the birds that are being seen in the Eastern Cape and the amazing spots i really want to do a trip down to the eastern cape so i want to ask you can you give us a short rundown of the east of eastern cape birding including some special species that one may encounter so let's make people's mouths drool with with anticipation for coming down to the eastern cape
1: well we're very lucky here in the the eastern cape we have a very large province the entire eastern side of the province is coastline so the pelagic birding is fantastic It really is good. Um, We have a lot of river estuaries like Hamburg is a massive estuary that has fantastic waders in summer. We've had some really good birds there, Pacific Golden Plover and lesser and greater sand plovers and and who knows what else can show up there. Just down the road from these Fish River Mouth. That's a big estuary as well. Also had good birds. I've had pectoral Sandpiper there before. Um, the Crom River down further south, also fantastic. Those river mouths and estuaries are awesome for birds. I've had Eurasian curlew there as well in the Crom and lots of other really nice ones. SWATCorpps is a famous um, estuary for fantastic birding. waders in um, March, just before they go. It is absolutely incredible. It's so worth it when the waders are coming into breeding plumage and it is so exciting seeing them. They're not just gray and white, they get in color and you know, it's really cool. I've seen like five red knots at Swartcorp's, um estuary. We've got long coastal forests, right from um, Port Edward, Fish River Sun actually, right down to it has got fantastic coastal forests. And in the northern parts um, of our province, in the, like, northern Tron we get all the KZN birds, or most of them, actually. And that's very exciting for us, because we don't normally see purple-crested Turacos and black-throated wattle-eye, woolly-neck stalk are quite a treat to find there. We even had a black-bellied bustard there before. Um, we've had freckled nightjow and swamp nightjow up there in the northern Transkar, which is really cool because you don't get them anywhere else in the Eastern Cape. What most people want to come and see here in the Eastern Cape is Nisner woodpecker and um, Nisner warbler, um, even Barrett's warbler as well. That's one I know Tim Kirkcroft, um gets a lot of requests for Nisner woodpeckers. Um, we have Cape parrots as well, which is often a bird that most people want to see um, in the Stutterheim area, King Williamstown, Hogsback area, even Fort Beaufort and Adelaide in winter when they're eating um, nuts from the tree. So um, that's a really cool bird to have in the Eastern Cape. Then I'm thinking of the um, rock jumpers. Rhodes, Elliot, mcclaire area, you'll get the Rockensburg rock jumpers, Siskin and Pioneers up there. Fantastic birding in that area, Um, ground woodpeckers as well. And then uh, much further south you'll get, like in the Humensdorp area, the mountains just north of Humensdorp, you'll get the Cape Rock Jumper and Siskins. Fantastic birding in, in those areas as well. In the Fanebos, you'll get all the Fanebos specials the orange breasted sunbirds, Victorian warbler, and so forth. Then you get the Overston area, which is sort of quite hard Karoo sort of area Orange River, White Iron Franklin. The Brew Brew is quite a cool one as well to get in that area. Brown Crown Chagra. And black-chested prynia and melodious larks I've seen there as well. Then another really cool area to bird is the red brown Willowmore Aberdeen area. That is like central Karoo. Um, we've had Sclater's larks there, which is a, a bird that everybody wants to see. The black-eared sparrow lark, we've also had there um, in recent years gray-backed sparrow larks are quite common um, in that area. Cinnamon-breasted warbler, we've also had on the very edge of the of the Eastern Cape, just north of Aberdeen, uh, we found a really cool place for that, right on the edge. Karoo eromamelas are also in that area. Namako warblers, track track chat, and Karoo longbilled larks, Um, you can also get there. Yeah, mountain zebra parks also got very cool um birds as well. Fantastic place for the LBJs, the larks and the pippets. Um very, very good area for those pink bald larks and um eastern long billed larks. But yeah, birding here is great. We've got all the habitats that you can think of. As I said, the coastline, the estuaries, the coastal forests. We've got fantastic salt pans. Um Tankatar is really good. Um, it's produced huge um, giggers um, in the past, in like the last three years. It was like in the news. Albany Thicket's quite cool. Um, this is where I bird a lot. I see some really cool birds here too. And yeah, I think I've covered just about all the habitats.
0: And then what's your favorite birding spot in Eastern Cape and why? Your personal favorites.
1: I love going to Rhodes and doing Nordi's Neck area and um, tenor Head. It is not only fantastic to get all those um, great birds there, the um, Drakensberg birds and the bearded um, vulture, that is a very sought after bird as well, but the scenery is spectacular and it's a really safe area to bird as well. You know, you don't feel threatened. It, it's very safe, it's beautiful. The people are friendly and I can't wait to get there again soon, hopefully.
0: I'm sure after this hearing the birds are in the Eastern Cape, uh, people are gonna be booking to get down there and hopefully be a lot of tourists coming down there to come and see the birds that are down there. Have you heard that BirdLife South Africa is hosting the first ever virtual African bird fair on Saturday, the 5th of September, 2020. We will be showcasing a jam packed full day with world-class speakers giving fantastic talks and presentations, silent auctions, virtual exhibitor stalls, and much, much more. You will be able to join and participate from the comfort of your own home with the whole family. Keep an eagle eye out for registrations to open and for announcements of the amazing speakers we have lined up. We are bringing virtually the best bird fair in Africa to you. Be sure not to miss out. One area that has, and I think you kind of touched on it, that has attracted a lot of birders has been Port Elizabeth, because there's been some amazing rarities that have shown up. Just as a matter of interest, um, I don't know Port Elizabeth that well, but why do you think that this area seems to attract the rarities that it it does?
1: Um, I think the PE area has a lot of birders, There are a lot of active birders there, and the more people are... Going around birding, the more um, likely the birds will be picked up. For example, um, that big rush at um, Tankatara when we had those three megas and gigas, the uptas warbler and little ring plover and that. That started off with Daniel Dankwitz and Joe Barmer and I spotting what we thought was a, a redneck um, stint. And we all took photos of it. And then Joe went back soon after that, and he found that little ringed plover there. And that was a huge one for South Africa. And then we came back a, another time, well, soon after that, to look for that bird. And we found a warbler in a tree, the only tree around the salt pans. There are no other trees in. This little warbler was in a tree. And we all thought it was a marsh warbler. And we all took lots of photos of it and watched um its behavior and that and it turned out to be an uptures warbler after weeks and weeks of experts um, discussing the id it turned out to be an upture so now that run of gigas and megas started off by just some birders seeing a bird and then some went back to look for that bird again to see if it really was a redneck stint and then you know more people finding it i remember um standing there looking for the little ring plover and there were a whole lot of people there and Stuart McLaughlin said what is that wagtail over there and that was a citrine wagtail so that I think there were about four rarities at Tankatara that year in the same week they all vanished after that after about two weeks um they weren't seen again so I think it's because there, there were birders present there. If we hadn't gone and seen that red shank when we did, I'm um, sorry, that red neck stint when we did, we wouldn't have discovered the others probably. Cape Recife, I think as well, there are a lot of birders that go there and they see these rarities there and um, send out the alarm. But I do think there are more rarities around the Eastern Cape that just don't get seen. Pe has got a beautiful estuary it's got the salt pan so it's ideal habitat for those types of birds and then cape Recife is ideal as well it kind of juts out into the sea if you look at a map of pe pe is a bay and then cape Recife really juts out quite far into the sea so i think that explains why a lot of pelagic birds sort of end up there um, after bad weather or whatever you know they you know end up there and it's it's also quite close to bird island as well so yeah i think that could explain some of it
0: so lynette you run a youtube channel and this youtube channel is growing and at an incredibly fast rate and what's interesting about this youtube channel is is there's no commentary or anything it's just birds showing and calling that's all that's on the account so let me ask you why do you think that people are attracted to your youtube account what do you think the attraction is
1: yeah um i'm a big contributor to xenocanto i don't know if you know xenocanto it's a an international um, bird call library um as it were but those are just the recordings of bird calls i've always had this idea Maybe it's the um, teacher in me. I want to put a photo with that call. So the listener is looking at what the bird looks like. And sometimes I put a a bit of, uh, you know, I might put a caption there, uh, some interesting snippet um, about the bird, you know. So my YouTube channel is a photo of the bird with a title, obviously, uh, you know, the bird's name, and the call playing through art. It's a teacher, and me probably to make it educational, interesting. And you're not just listening to a sound. You're actually looking at the actual bird as well. And you can see what it looks like. Probably more for beginner birders. But I've had a lot of experienced birders also, you know, quite interested in it. Um, I'm actually quite amazed that my channel's taken off like because It's taken like three years because on Facebook, I don't post my links to my youtube um, videos very often i find people on facebook are lazy to open a youtube video i post my video straight onto facebook i find people find it much easier they just click on that um, right pointing arrow and the video plays but i find them a bit lazy to actually go into facebook play it and then go out again I'm not sure how my channel has become sort of quite well known now. I've got well over a thousand subscribers, but I think people often Google. I've had people say to me, oh, they Googled Fiery Neck Nightjar to see if there was a call and they found my YouTube video. That seems to be one of the most um, like common calls that people are looking for. And my most popular video believe it or not is the hardy dark call i think people that have um sort of left south africa quite <laughs> get quite homesick for the hardy dog so they google hardy dark call and then they find my video
0: and then where did this passion for bird calls start because you're you know you spend a lot of time recording bird calls and that kind of thing and, and to be honest with you the bird calls for a lot of people is the more challenging part of birding so where did this passion for calls start
1: with my very first birding trip, I went on, um, I went with um, Justin Nikola. he's a very well-known bird gardener, and Tim Cocroft, who's excellent at bird calls. He really is brilliant. Uh, he's definitely one of the best in the country. And um, I went with them on a trip, just northwest of um, Grahamstown, and I was so amazed at how brilliant they were at saying, "Oh." That's an acacia part, Bob. That's a chestnut vented babbler That's a you know. So they were naming all the birds, and you know I knew some of the calls um, from from when I was a child. But it was absolutely fascinating that they knew all the calls, and I thought, now I need to also know all the calls. And it never occurred to me that there are people that like bird, but they don't know the calls, and they're too frightened to learn the calls. As far as I'm concerned. Um, we're all visual birders, but we should also be auditory birders. We should also listen for the sound of the bird and learn the call because often you hear a bird in the bush before you see it or before you even know it's there. And especially for people that atlas, um, um, it helps so much to know the calls because I can atlas that bird on its core and, and not have, have to have a visual, like a sighting of it. So um, to me, the call's always gone with my birding. It's very important. And that comes from birding with people that bird that way as well. You know, um, they know the birds by their calls and it's all part of birding and it should be. Um, More people should make an effort to learn the calls. But I can see why it's a bit daunting for some people because you will learn the Bokmäkiri call, the one call, and then they've got another version of the call, and you know. And then you go up country, and the Bokmäkiri sound different there. And you know, I had that when I was um, went to Mozambique and Zim recently. The Blackback puffbacks—they sound so different to the Eastern Cape ones. I was forever asking, "You, what is that again?" And he'd say, "Blackback." puff bag and I say oh it sounds so different from the ones at home. So I think it's a bit daunting for some people you know because you learn one call and then you go to a different area and that bird sounds quite different and or it it might have different variations of a call. But I've always told people learn the birds in your own garden first in your own neighborhood. Watch them call so you know okay that's a book recording. That's a southern gray-headed sparrow calling. So you can learn the calls and that's how, you know, you can build up your repertoire of calls, as it were.
0: Yeah, that was the question I was going to ask. You know, for those who do struggle, um, you know, what tips would you give them? you have obviously given one tip is start with your local birds, but what other tips would you give them in terms of growing um, and learning bird calls?
1: Yeah, as I said, you, you should start at home. It's much easier just like learning the calls around your garden, watching the birds and watch the birds when they're calling. You know, look through the barnes, watch them or the bins, some people call it. Um, you know, watch them calling because you you won't forget that call if you're actually observing the bird calling. Um, it, it'll leave an impression on you. Um, also, you know, the Robert's calls are quite good. Um, I learned a lot from that as well because um, I might learn one version of a bird's call and then I'll listen to Robert's and they'll have the song of that bird. They'll have the call. They might have a warning call or, you know, a call from a juvenile, you know. So that's how I learned as well. Just um, these bird apps, they quite a few Bird call apps these days now. So we're very spoilt in this country. Um, you can sit and learn those. And I mean, Google as well. Google the call. Try and find, you know, you might come upon my YouTube channel, but Zenocanto um, is full of bird calls. Um, it's a fantastic library and it's got a lot of South African or Southern African birds, uh, bird calls as well. And also join the Southern African Bird Calls group, that also a group that I started a few years ago, it's become quite popular. Um, people post just ordinary cell phone videos that they've taken of a bird calling. Um, it might be a, fat, uh, a video of a bush, but the you know the audio is there. And they often ask for an ID. So, you know, we don't like um, emphasize quality. It's just, you know the people say what bird is that and um someone will say oh it's a southern boo-boo duet or whatever so people are are slowly getting you know quite keen on learning the calls.
0: i've actually got an app on my phone called bird sounds it's actually got a i think a sacred ibis for its icon and they use the canto sounds and it's actually quite a cool app it's a free app so um you know out in the field as long as there's cell phone connection you can access the xenocanto calls which is quite nice and and i've used a lot of your calls out on the field to check things up on that type thing but let's talk about the practical aspects a lot of people are interested in recording bird calls and you spoke about the fact that they're not always great quality but for those who want to record good quality bird calls can you speak us through the process um let's talk about equipment that you need to get um, how works on the field, and also the post-processing. What happens afterwards when you get home?
1: Um, I must say I don't have the most expensive recording equipment at all. You see, because I carry a big birding camera around and a bridging camera that I use for videos, bird videos. I try and get videos of birds actually singing as well um, that I put on my YouTube channel. So I just don't have space to walk around with a big parabolic dish. Or a big um, recording device. So I've gone small. I I use a small Olympus digital voice recorder um, with a small directional mic, um, a Rode Mic Pro. It's brilliant. It's really good. Um, With a dead cat, because so often um, you are recording in a field and there's a bit of a breeze and you get that awful like wind sound on the mic. So the dead cat is very furry and like eliminates that soft breeze. Um if it's a howling gale, there's no way you'll get a, a decent recording. So it's not even worth even using a dead cat um in a strong wind like that. But um that's what I carry around. It's small, lightweight, and for me the quality is fine. But there are people that are much more into like um serious, like excellent um quality recordings and that costs a lot more you'll you'll need a parabolic dish which is cool because it like um, filters the sound into the you know um, towards the mic and um, you can get very expensive setup for that as well but uh, as I said I I use the much cheaper version lighter version because it's more practical for me um, that carries a big um, camera around as well Um, Editing, um, I download download them onto my camera and I edit on Audacity. That's a very, very good, uh, versatile um, editing software. It's free and you can do a lot um, when editing. For example, if someone's talking while you're recording, you can chop out that talking. I liken it to editing photos. maybe on like photoshop you can cut out things that you don't want so you know if someone's talking during a recording i can cut that out or if a dog's barking i can cut that out you can amplify you can high pass filter so that for example if there's a a dove calling while there's a sunbird calling a sunbird has a very high pitched call and a dove has a much lower call you can use a high pass filter to filter out the low um dove call and then you know um and um vice versa with a low pass filter i try not over edit because sometimes um i've seen people that over edit their calls the calls sound tinny you know it sounds like the birds calling in a tin drum i try and keep my um recordings as natural as possible so the bird sounds like it sounded in the field when I
0: heard it. Lynette, I just want to say I really appreciate you being on the show today. It's been great chatting to you. Um, your impact in the birding community is huge. I mean, just the the Eastern Cape group, there's so much impact you've had down there. And I just want to thank you for the hard work. I know your your calls have not just gone in Xeno Canto. They've gone into things like the Sassel app and that. And I just want to thank you for... The hard work that you put on. I know your YouTube um, videos have just introduced so many people to the world of calls and birding. So I just want to say thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate you giving up your time. And yeah, thanks a million. No,
1: well, thanks. I've enjoyed the chat. You've been cool.
0: Don't forget, we are raising much needed funds for the Mabula Ground Hornball Project throughout the month of August. Click on the link in the comments section of this podcast to give and stand in line to win amazing prizes all of the relevant email addresses and websites from this episode on the comments section of this podcast we are proud to be working in association with wild books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price if you would like to support the Birding Life project and the resources that we are putting out please click on either the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact Be sure to head on over to our website www.thebirdinglife.com Not only do we have our regular blog section giving all sorts of information about Southern African birding, we have also just recently launched an exciting forum page on the website. Be sure to head on to the page and use this resource to grow as a birder and to learn a whole lot more about birding. Also don't forget to follow The Birding Life on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. We really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out BirdLasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation. As well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, binoculars and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.